Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. Today I'm joined by Austin Grant. He's the CTO and co-founder of RespondFlow. He is a uh, former MS student at the University of Oklahoma under Dr. Christian Grant, studying deep learning, focusing on human interactivity with lingering interest in quantum computing and quantum machine learning. Uh, while he was uh, participating in his academic studies, he also advises startups in machine learning, artificial intelligence technologies for business use. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you for having me. So I noticed that you're one of the people who decided to pursue a further level of computer science education. What's the motive, what's the motive behind all that? That's a fantastic question, actually. Um, so it kind of boils down to the fact that I got into programming originally because I liked math and solving problems. Um, but I didn't like doing it without an application to it. So I wanted to know that when you're, what I was doing was something like a business or somebody else could actually use one day without just having being like a floating theorem. Um, so that kind of pushed me away from just like raw mathematics, but I really liked being in theory land. Um, and while I enjoyed programming as well, that's kind of where I was happiest. And mm -hmm. I also, and this is not true of a lot of PhD students, you'd be surprised. I really enjoyed teaching. So while mm -hmm. I was at OU, I actually taught, uh, I was an instructor for an intro to, pro, uh, intro to Python course um, for non-majors. So they were you know, different like psychology students or biomed students who were interested in data, would come take my course, and, and I got to teach that. So I was in front of 80 to 100 kids, usually per semester, and um, got to do that. And I absolutely loved it. So uh, for a long time, I really wanted to get a PhD and become a professor somewhere. And here I am. That didn't happen at all. So, um, <laughs> um, But maybe the background of that being, you know, when I, I did my undergrad in computer science, and I, I did a lot of, uh, you know, research assistantships with machine learning and I had some uh, internships that did that, um, did that same kind of thing. And I, I jumped straight from that to a PhD uh, at the University of Oklahoma under, like I said, Dr. Christian Grant. Um, and he was awesome. He's a great advisor. Um, but at the end of the day, when I started applying to the fellowships, uh, they were telling me for what you're wanting to study, which was uh, really big into human machine teaching. So kind of changing mm -hmm. how models are trained. Um, the feedback I got the vast majority of the time was, this sounds great, it sounds like awesome research, but you don't have any practical experience to back up why you mm -hmm. want to spend your life doing this. So I made the executive decision to kind of cut out a master's degree. I took a, a paper I was writing with uh, Dr. Grant and turned it into a master's thesis, uh, graduated and went off in industry to kind of get some experience. And I do hope to go back one day and finish it out because hmm. uh, I loved it. But um and I, I especially think that, um, especially like the master's portion and even the PhD portions, it was very like theory focused, but I think it really helped me in, um, especially like working, you know, with, like starting a startup because where if I was somebody who had gone and just gotten like into a software developer job, uh, you know, I had way more context about um, like higher level thinking that was necessary uh, to actually go and design something from the ground up rather than just kind of, you know, doing GR cards moving forward. Of course, all depending on the kind of job you have. I don't want to. Was it scary to make the jump from academia into industry, especially at like early stage companies and now as a co-founder? Absolutely. Yes, it was terrifying, um, especially because, you know, I was, I was a grad student in computer science. And so I didn't have a lot of actual like coding experience to speak of outside of like products I did myself or just internships. And so I was really leaning on the companies who are hiring me to trust me to uh, be able to do the job effectively without having, you know, proof in the pudding. Um, and I kind of lucked out with the community. So I, I, um, I started in Oklahoma, I went to University of Oklahoma. Um, I stayed in Oklahoma and we're still there. Uh, Respond Flow is in Tulsa. 
Um, and I think that environment really, really helped because the community in Oklahoma and tech, which is surprising to a lot of people, is growing extremely quickly. Like you're seeing huh. more startups like come here um, and start here and um, just getting like way more uh, you know community around it. So um, I, I came out in Oklahoma saying like, hey, I have a master's degree. I know machine learning. <laughs> I can I know how websites work. Give me a job. Um, it was very well accepted and, and they're willing to kind of train me up in the actual day-to-day hmm. -day processes of, of being a software engineer. What was the biggest culture shock from academia going into industry for you? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I would have to say, you know, academia is very, very loose in how everything is treated, right? You know, I was in charge of defining my own path, which I really, really enjoyed. And, um, you know, going into the real world, I lost a lot of that. You know, there's a lot of being told what to do, not necessarily being told how to do it, but being told, you know, what to do and what the schedule was. And I, there were elements that I didn't like because I would, I would get told to do things that I maybe didn't understand why I had to do them. And I had the freedom to ask. And I did, of course. Um, but it was a lot of times, you know, I get answers like, oh, you know, this is something that marketing needs for this function. I didn't necessarily understand at the time, um, something along those lines. Uh, but at the same time, it was nice because I guess my days were simpler. It was a lot yeah. less like waking up. What am I doing today? I, you know, I woke up, I went to work. I knew exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I knew what my OKRs were. I knew what the goals I had were and everything was defined, which I know a lot of people, you know, especially in the startup world kind of, you know, talk crap on the nine to five, but there's something about it that's really simple and relaxing. Um, um, so there, so I think that was probably the biggest one. Hmm. So how do you feel like the, did you know you wanted to be a co-founder from the time you first left uh, academia to start your first industry job? Um, or was that just stumbled along the way? You know, I can't say that I had the active thought in my head that I wanted to co-found a company. Um, it's something I always wanted to try to do. Um, you know, Responflow isn't my first rodeo with this. I've probably, I'd say three or four of them I've tried in the past. It just kind of went nowhere. You know, I had something, I had an MVP, a few people might have used, but it just it failed to raise capital or fails to really grow anywhere or, you know, failed to find the right team. Um, so, like, I had a thought in my head that, like, I wanted to have that experience and I wanted to do that. Um, but it wasn't something that I was actively looking for um, until, you know, and this was, I was still in grad school at the time, but um, I actually met at a concert, one of my now co-founders, uh, Matt Morph. He's our, our current head of marketing. I met him at a concert and him and I just started talking and he said, Hey, I'm working hmm. with this other guy, Martin Leon, who's, you know, now our CEO. Um, I'm working with him on this kind of side hustle. Um, and we could use like some technical, you know, advising. Do you want to kind of help us out? And I said, does it pay? And he said, absolutely not. And so I said, ah, I'll do it. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll still do it. So I talked with them and we, we originally, Kind of had this idea of like a this like gift giving out there trying to build and i was just kind of helping them out building a couple prototypes of that and then that turned into something else which turned into something else which turned into something else which ended up being respond flow and it originally the idea was we all had our full-time jobs um we all lived together in oklahoma city um, and i guess peter at this point had been roped in as well he's our head of sales um uh, we were all living together in a house in Oklahoma City, and the idea was we work our, you know, we work our jobs and we do this nights and weekends to make some extra cash, and it is cheap as hell to live in Oklahoma. So you know, we were just kind of a, this, like amassing savings. 
Um, <laughs> but then, you know, it, it just kind of kept growing. And I don't think any of us had really seriously thought about really co-founding a company yet. Um, yeah. Until we got to a point where I sat down with, with the guys and I said, look, you know, we're doing this nights and weekends and I can't necessarily put the fourth amount of time this is requiring anymore because people are requesting like advanced features now, uh, not something I can just kind of build, you know, drinking coffee at 2 a.m. <laughs> I would need to either hire someone or I need to go full time myself for a period of time to do this. And so that was kind of the first time we really talked about trying to raise capital to try to start this up. Um, mm. And that's when, you know, we, we went to, we applied for Y Combinator thinking like, ah, oh, it's not really going to go anywhere. We actually got an interview. Um, Hmm. And uh, we did not pass the interview. I think the, the advice, the, the feedback we got was we didn't have a repeatable sales process yet, which, which was very okay. fair feedback um, because we didn't. Um, but then we entered, um, oh, I'm forgetting what the name of it is. Uh, but it's, it's an accelerator out of Oklahoma City run by the Thunder. Thunder Launchpad, that's what it's called. Hmm. We entered Thunder Launchpad and we kind of did that program thinking like, oh, you know, this is it's pretty casual. We'll see where it goes. Well, at their demo day is where we actually met um, our first investor who said, you know, I will give you real money to try to pursue this. I think there's actually might be something here. I think you guys could really build something out of this. And that's when I really had like the, I had to um, you know, kind of do some soul searching on whether or not I really wanted to pursue this and take this risk. Um, and, you know, thankfully I decided I, I, I did. You know, I said, you know, man, I'm young. I was 24 at the time. Uh, it's like, I'm young, I'm single, I have no attachments, you know, if I'm going to do it, I should do it now. Yeah. And, um, and I did, I'm really thankful for it. And I, I remember calling my mom, like right after, like I signed the dotted line on the investment. Um, it was like, it was like Martin and then me and then uh, Matt and then Peter. And I called my mom and I said, I give it three months. We'll run this thing right. You got to believe in yourself. Uh, <laughs> see how it goes. And here we are, I think, you know maybe I guess a little over two and a half years later after founding um, a little over almost a year and a half since, you know, first, uh, first funding um, just closing our seed round and chugging along. I think with a team of 15 hmm. people now. And out of those 15, how many of them are like developers or related to product development? Um, let's see. It'd be one, two, three, four with a fifth coming on next week. So you, you mentioned earlier to me that you are going through different iterations of the product of mm -hmm. what Respond Flow was. Yes. What are some of the things you learned about finding product market fit and building products for market in the process? Um, that gut feelings are often wrong. You know. Hmm. Um, Could you walk me through an example? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so you know we, and, and I'll answer this question to, to begin with, kind of saying a little bit of how the way we're calling the way Respond Flow currently is, how that actually came to be. Um, and it actually came out of a need from a company, which a lot of people, they find, you know, people might think, oh, you probably found product market fit pretty quickly out of that when that was quite frankly not the case. Um, but our, our CEO, Martin, he was working his full-time job at a, at a startup out of Oklahoma City. And they were trying to reach out via SMS to their people um, or to uh, their sales team was trying to reach out over SMS to people because they're getting way better response rates and getting people in a lot easier. So... They, um, they really couldn't find a product that really fit their needs. And so that's when I was looped in to try to build a prototype. Um, and what we perceived as product market fit 
was for a very, very specific customer. And we kind of fell in the fallacy that we can make this work for other people doesn't necessarily mean there's a fit there. Hmm. And the more that I talk with, especially, you know, younger startup founders, the more I start to see that is they think they have this cool idea and they think because they think it'll work for other people, it actually will. When, you know, you don't really know needs yet. You don't really know what the market actually is. It didn't take a, until us really digging into the industry, um, telecom in particular, and like looking at how things are done and why they're done until we really found anything resembling product market fit. And I wouldn't even say, you know, mm -hmm. we just finished our seed round. I wouldn't even say we've really gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. um, but we're very, very close. Um, and that's where we're hiding. We're, a lot of our hiring is focused on an actual product team uh, to, to, to bring in and actually kind of roll that out and make sure we get there. Um, but I mean, a lot of industries, you know, are, are not always know what they seem at the forefront. You know, like telecom, you use Twilio, you feel like I sent API request, I sent a text, how hard did that could actually be? Turns out extremely hard. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that goes into that. And then product market fit doesn't necessarily just involve meeting the needs of the customers, but making sure you're meeting the needs of the actual regulatory bodies and the people that are like receiving these things at, at the end of the day. So um, there's just a lot of discovery that we didn't do that we probably should have early on um, that we've done now. And now it's, you know, the world has opened up. When you say you're almost at product market fit, what's your definition or metric for product market fit? And how do you feel like, what makes you feel like you're close to it versus like, uh, really close versus somewhat close versus somewhat far. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. And I would to specify to the scale you just gave me, I would put it at somewhat close, right? Okay. Um, and defining the metrics, you know, that's what we're bringing in the product team for. <laughs> I'll just really make sure that we, uh, we actually have a goal to reach there. Um, but we, 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 what we did was we took what we have and the customers we had, and we looked at what problems our product has versus what our competitors have. And we, um, and we actually found out like everyone kind of has the same pain points, right? Across the board, as far as like how things are done. And so we said, okay, we're going to mock up this, uh, like simple interface to solve this particular problem. You know, there's something called 10 DLC in telecom that carriers are moving to where you have to register numbers with who you are to be able to send texts, um, cough, cough, good luck to you. Um, <laughs> and we found out, you know, as, as, as we were using tool, like using our tools and seeing what competitors were doing, people were just kind of fumbling over this. And so we said, mm -hmm. um, we looked at how we were doing it and we kind of mocked up a change in the interface and we handed it to, to customers and, um, handed it to a few potential customers and connections we had. And there was a major aha that we've seen across the board, mm -hmm. across all of them that made us think, okay, there's something here. Right. And so we took that a step further and actually developed this sort of service package around it. So the, that kind of, you know, um, didn't require any engineering effort. It was more just you know, like someone would sit down and fill out a form somewhere. Um, and we started providing that to new customers as they were coming in. And the comments we've been getting have been like overwhelmingly, oh, thank God. Well, this other company was making me do this thing. Like that was hmm. crazy. And I had to fill out all this stuff. And like this other company was making us do this other thing. And so I say somewhat close because we've, you know, from what we've seen, the data we've gathered, there's clearly something here, um, but it boils down to actually like productizing it correctly. And that's what our seed round is about. That's kind of the OKRs mm. set. 
um, before we go for a Series A. Gotcha. And when you when you think about trying to like adapt a product to the customers, are you the one doing the interviews with the customers, or do you have a teammate doing it? And how do you like make sure the information, like the correct information, is reaching the product team? So it's a combination of people. Um, we have a, a customer success representative who kind of kicks it off um, and kind of initiates the, you know, hey, let's meet, let's talk about this. Um, and then it's a mixture of uh, me and their head of marketing or head of sales who kind of sit in there and hmm. ask very pointed questions. Um, the problem with telecom is things get very technical very fast. So if you look into how you actually register phone numbers to people, there's a lot of acronyms in there. There's a lot of things that are very unclear. There's a lot of processes that someone who just wants to send text to their customers does not understand and does not want to understand. Hmm. Um, and so where I, you know, you know, I, I ask things relevant to like, how, how do you expect, you know, text messaging to behave? Um, our head of sales will talk a little bit more about the registration processes where our head of marketing will talk a little bit more about their experience with email and how they expect that to carry over to SMS. Um, and so it covers a spectrum of um, just like behavior of the medium um, that we really focus on um, so that we can communicate properly why they have to give us certain kinds of information. Because um, it, it's a pretty obvious point that, you know, people that come on to SMS seem to think like, oh, it's just going to be email. I just like type out my email template. And yeah, you know, it gets marked as spam sometimes. There's some health I got to measure. Um, but for the most part, like it's going to work. Like SMS is not like that. Um, at all. It's very, very different in how you can actually go about um, sending them and how fast um, and who to and, you know, the whole gambit. So what are some things that you um, learned through the experience of being a co-founder or, or what are some things you felt like you carried on from your academic experiences into your current role? Yeah, that's, again, fantastic question. Um, I think between the two, I think I'm probably more okay with failure than the average person um, because I got a lot of rejections for a lot of things. Um, and I, I remember specifically pointing out, I was, I was telling a story to one of our new investors at one point, and the comment I think I made to him was like, between being a PhD student and a technical co-founder, I've had my intelligence insulted every which way it can be insulted. Hmm. So like, I've just become a brick wall to it. Um, which kind of, which plays in my favor because it's made me a little more brave just to try something out, right? And it's, it's given me more spectrum as far as, you know, when do I just kind of throw something at the wall versus when do I actually really need to sit down um, and engineer something? And particularly, and, and mostly like when it also has to deal with like how I lead a team. Right. Cause I mean, I've, I've been a part of teams, other companies where quite frankly, the leader was, I, I felt was inept. Um, mm -hmm. and like it, it was every, you know, every negative thing you could do led to like the worst thing in the world. And so it's, it's been my attitude when I lead a team that like, if you mess up, it's okay. We'll fix it. There's always a fix to everything. Mm -hmm. Um, if you bring down production, that's fine. Try not to do it again, but it's fine. Um, and if we, you know, if we're off schedule, that's okay. We just do our best to fix it. So hmm. the mantra that our, my engineering team has is at the end of the day, if you can go home and you can say, I did everything that I knew to do to solve this problem, whether it worked or not, then that was a successful day. Hmm. Are there some preconceived notions that you learned in academia that you realize are like not true based on your experiences in the industry? 
either about development, about product development fit, or about like working within teams? Yeah, the, um, honestly, that a product has to be there for it to be sold. Okay. Right. I I always thought that you know if I don't know I'm, I'm going to throw out a random example, not saying this is what happened, but you know I'm going to say Google, right? Like it's not necessarily true that a startup that says, "Hey, I've indexed the whole internet," actually has, right? They might have ideas on how to. They might be executing on the research necessary, but you know you can, and I say this, you know, because there's legal things around it, but um, like you can sell something that's not there within reason to test markets. Yeah. Um, and so when I kind of realized that was happening the way I evaluate new products really, really changed and like whether I want to actually work for them or not, you know, especially when it comes, I was in the machine learning world. So of course that's in introduced and people pointed out every AI startup there has ever been to me. Um, and when I thought like, do I want to actually go try to work for this person? You know, my thoughts on that really changed. Um, because I started looking at like who are, who's actually working for them you know, who have they actually published anything? Who are like, who are the founders? Like, do they necessarily have the credentials to say they can do this? Um, versus this like a no code thing to kind of slap together to, to test something out for it, to pay money for a researcher. Um, so yeah, I hope that answered that. I hope I answered that question correctly. It does, it does. What's your favorite thing now that you're a co-founder? Like what's your best favorite part of your day? My favorite part of the day, going to bed. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that people like, I mean, you watch, oh, what's it like the social network where they talk about Mark Zuckerberg pulling crazy all nighters to build code and stuff. We're like, ah, oh, that's a dramatization. Well, yeah, there's, there's some realness to it. Um, you know, it's, uh, you're as a founder, you know, your, your workday never really ends. It just kind of keeps going. Um, so while I, my employees may work nine to fives, you know, I'm getting Slack messages at six or seven o'clock dealing with issues at midnight, 1am. Um, we have team members that help us out of course as well. Hmm. Um, but my favorite part of my day is when I can lay in bed, whether that be at 10pm midnight or 4am. And I can think like we made it a little further today. Like we released that one small bug fix that I no longer have to worry about. Or we released that feature today that is going to add a lot of value. Um, and so the feeling of, you know, I've been a major part of bringing something like from nothing to actually being here and people paying for it. Like that's just a very satisfying feeling. Hmm. And when it comes to becoming a leader of multiple technical staff, how do you learn that process and how are you learning that process? I think... You know, there's really no formula to it. I mean, there's Agile and Scrum and stuff as far as like how teams should be structured, how they should be run. And, you know, we have, Responsible has our versions of doing that, of course. Um, but what I've learned and what I've gotten from my own mentors is, you know, like I said, there, there, there's no formula for it. You just have to do what you find works best for your team and who you're working for. And that's how you build your engineering culture. Um, so, you know, when it was just me, like I worked really hard, obviously. <laughs> um, I pulled all nighters, I, I was coding all the time, I was uh, doing, all, doing all that. Um, but then when you go to hire someone on your team, especially for something that you found and that you're working on, 
number one, you have to do like the mental battle of giving up responsibility for your own child. Um, I do not have any children, so I cannot truly speak to it, but I imagine it's similar to like when you're having to give your kid to a babysitter for the first time, right? There's, there's elements of like, oh, I'm checking Slack all day. Like if I'm on vacation or something to make sure nothing's going wrong or like, oh, I'll check in my technical lead. Like, Hey man, is everything okay? Need my help. Um, there, there's the first step of like, I, I'm giving up responsibility for a lot of this to somebody else who doesn't know it as well as I do. And, th and that's very nerve wracking. Plus you have to make the decision. Are you wanting to hire someone like yourself? Or are you wanting to hire someone that's going to fill in gaps that you don't fill? For example, I think when I first started hiring, and, th and this was a mistake that I made as a, as a technical founder, is when I first started hiring, I was hiring for someone like myself. Like I wanted to pull crazy hours. I wanted to get stuff built. I wanted to get it out there. And that, that honestly led down a bad path because now it's kind of hive mind around how engineering mm -hmm. works. And there's just one way to do things. We had no opposing views to challenge what we were doing or see if there's a way to do it better. The best hire I ever made was our uh, now technical lead who is in a lot of ways opposite of me. Um, he's very, I know how to do it this way, but because this is a, this is a new project, I'm going to make like redo the research to make sure there's another way, there might be another way to do it. Um, and he's always wanted to play devil's advocate of like, I say we should do it this way. And he says, ah, we should probably actually rethink that and like try these other ways. Um, hmm. and like being challenged that way honestly led to more product stability from a technical perspective because he was always catching the things that I wasn't. And if I hadn't made that hire and someone was like thinking like me and working like me and engineering like me, that those things wouldn't have been caught. On the topic of hiring, how do you attract people to an early stage company? Um, that's, um, a very difficult thing to do, to be honest. I mean, number one, well, you've hired at least four people to your staff, so you must know something. <laughs> um, you have to be very careful about who you're, who you're exactly you're hiring, right? Because number one, you have to be, you have to be hiring people that are okay with like undefined work, if that makes any sense. Like, you know, I, we're, we're a seed stage, so we're getting there, but we're still very much, I show up to work and I might, I don't know what's going to happen that day. Like, <laughs> I mean, who knows? I might get, a whole day to myself to kind of get some tickets out, or I might be like, you know, putting out fires the whole day. Um, and you have to find number one engineers that are okay with that kind of space. And I wish I could tell you like a percentage that I found where that holds true, like where people do or don't like that. I haven't really seen a pattern to be honest. Um, and there are programmers out there who, I mean, they, like I said, they want to show up and they want to do their tickets and they want to work their sprints and, and plan everything. And that's perfectly fine. That is a fantastic way to engineer. Um, mm -hmm. But for a startup, that doesn't necessarily always work. And so you have to find number, number one, find those people. And, and number two, you know, there's a whole thing when you're hiring engineers, like tech stack doesn't necessarily matter, um, which is true. I think if you're going to a big company, because um, you because you have time to teach them what you're doing and how you're doing it, and what you're doing it in. But if I, if you're my third programmer that I'm hiring, I need you to be able to hop in like day one. And so I'm going to be a little more specific about the, like, do you have experience with the tools we use or the process we use? And that's when it gets a little hairy. Um, and that's where I think a lot of uh, startups typically work in very standard, you know, technologies to make that a little easier. So like maybe Java is not the best choice for whatever app you're building, but like 
hell of a lot of people know Java, so it's way easier to find people who can hop in. Um, and yeah, it's just, you, you, and you have to be very cognizant, like I said, of the culture you're building. Because when it's just you, the culture is you. But when you start throwing in more people, their attitudes are going to contribute not only to the engineering culture and, and how you work, but how the company culture is as a whole. And so as horrible as it may sound to some people, you know, I've interviewed engineers that were incredible, like clearly extremely talented and they love just pulling crazy hours and love doing like the whole startup situation. But quite frankly, I didn't like them. Like I didn't, <laughs> I, just, I didn't like working with them. Like when I was trying to speak to them, it felt like a chore. Hmm. And so I, when I was like going through, looking through my feedback that I was writing up to hand back to a recruiter, of course, I don't want to just hire people that I like. That's not a good practice. But the, the point I made to the recruiter was, you know, when I was talking to them, it felt very forced. Like I felt like I couldn't freely communicate with them. Or when I tried to, I felt like there was a lot of pushback. You know, and if it's just me and you sitting in a room, we need to be able to spit, like bounce ideas off of each other, and you we need need to be able to work really cohesively together. And so, and that's probably arguably like one of the main points you need to hit. Hmm. And in terms, oh, you mentioned a recruiter. Is this someone inside your company, or like a third party that you work with to acquire more more staff members? Mixture of both. Okay. Mixture of both. Uh, being in Tulsa has a lot of perks. Like I said, they're really pushing on um, tech community here. So uh, the city of Tulsa and like the relevant, you know, capital groups, um, they have a few recruiting services they provide to startups. Hmm. Hmm. That I did not know that. That's pretty yeah. cool. With a mixture of we have a, a couple other people that we pay hourly. Do you find a difference between the recruit, sorry, the engineers that come through the external recruiters versus the internal recruiters? Yes, I do. Um, number one in volume, uh, the external recruiters just send us way more people, but you get a wide more, a, a very wide array of how good of a match they actually are. Okay. Right. Cause I mean, if you, I mean, cause I mean, they're, they're not looking just for us, right? They're not looking just for respond flow. They're looking for several other companies, Tulsa as well. So if I put a right. title, I want a, you know, a backend data engineer for this thing. You know, they're, they're going to look for backend data engineers as a broad spectrum and then kind right. of find which bucket of company they're, they're, they're going to fill in. Right. So mm -hmm. you'll, and they're like way more likely to, so a lot of their metrics are, are on people sent to, sent to companies. Um, they're more likely to just send you people that they think might work, although it isn't an exact match, but they're very well aware of like, oh, this may not work or I think this is a good fit. Versus the people we have internally know us really well. They know me really well. They know our team really well. Um, okay. And so while it's less volume, the people we get through them are very, um, like, are very, are very pointed. Hmm. Just because there's more of, like, an open communication stream there. Regarding the thing you were talking about earlier about, like, some people just not being a good fit based on, like, personality. <laughs> what about, like, culture fit? Like, do you have a specific culture, like, frame you try to keep in mind when you evaluate candidates? Absolutely. Yes, we do. Um, and I kind of think of both of them as the, as the same thing, right? Like I said, I'm not, I'm not going to not hire someone just because I don't like them. Right. Um, but, you know, there, there is an element of you have to think about who do you want to be as a company and what do you want to be known for um, and hire towards that to make sure you're keeping it up. You know, for example, like, you know, Netflix is known for being hard asses around 
you know, their code reviews and everything. And, and I'm, I'm sure when they hire people, they're very, very specific to that kind of person who wants to be very nitty, mm. like nitpicky. And that plays towards what they have to solve as a company, of course. For SpawnFlow, we, one of our major, you know, product pillars is transparency and honesty. That when you're seeing something on the interface, you know that's our best bet to what's actually going on, especially mm. with telecom being such a black box. And we carry that into our company culture as well. So the people that we want to hire, um, I look for people who are going to be very honest with me about what they do and don't know and about how they behave. And um, people who are going to be willing to ask questions of people uh, when they need help and aren't going to sit there and, uh, you know, try to play, you know, low wolf and, um, you know, and, and, and try to get, get around things that way. So, um, you know, I, I keep my, pardon my French, but I keep my bullshit meter on, on pretty high. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think I've seen companies around here that don't do that. And I think it's led to some, I've watched really bad hires happen because of that. And it's hmm. been a, a mistake that response flow has made ourselves. I mean, like I said, we, there's been a couple engineers that we've hired because like of te purely technical ability and I'm the great programmers, but we end up having to let them go. Cause quite frankly, like I just couldn't communicate with them okay. the team couldn't communicate with them. And so it was hard to actually meet any of our team goals because it, it just presented, you know, more roadblocks than it um, presented solutions. So what's your perspective when it comes to technical talent, when it comes to like new staff, for example, um, as you're trying to solve a lot of problems as a company, a lot of solutions may not exist in the current tech stack, but may exist in other tech stacks. Do you look for people who have experience in specific tech stacks, or do you look for more uh, generalists who are able to think across like tools and platforms? I'd say a little more of the latter. I want you to be able okay. to solve problems and then apply the tool to solve the problem. Um, you know, like I said, there is an element, of course, like we are a startup. I do look for people that have experience on tech stack. Um, but especially for, you know, more senior level positions, for example, we're currently hiring for something we're calling a senior messaging engineer who's responsible for taking a text message from initiation to um, end device. Um, those kinds of people, I don't really care like what stack you've worked in. I want to be able to know that you can solve the kinds of problems that we have. So the way, hmm. the way I interview is very different. Um, so for example, if, if I'm hiring just for like a, you know, what we call a product engineer, um, then I'm going to want someone who like knows rest APIs and who I, I don't really expect any new engineers to know rust cause it's still kind of on the up and up. Um, but who's like worked in Java and Python who's used AWS and who's kind of like been in that space a little bit, but for someone a little more senior like that, I'm looking at, Hey, I have this data stream that requires our database to handle this crazy load. How do you go about actually solving that with like these kinds of tools I might give you? I might give you, for hmm. example, like saying like, oh, pretend you have a queuing system or a queuing API or pretend you have a cache service. And then I assume, you know, that kind of person can go in and say like, oh, we actually use Redis as our cache service. Then they can just like look up documentation and put in Redis. Hmm. How, uh, how well, are you the one that does all the interviews or do you have a like team and you split up the responsibilities across the team? We split the responsibility. Um, okay. So we... Our interview process for a, a new engineer, and this falls loosely for other departments as well. So um, it typically goes, you'll have a quick, you know, 30 minute chat with the recruiter, just like a quick culture gut check um, to make sure it's like, this is really someone that we want to kind of move forward with. 
and and I'll, I'll speak to engineering because that's what I do. Um, but our technical interview is generally in four sections, um, and we let you schedule it anywhere from like a four hour block to like one like individual days for each one hour section. Um, and those you know those four sections change depending on what the actual position is, but generally it's all the same sort of content. Where the first two will actually be with um, my second in command, who will do some like more lower level interviewing, like hey, write function, do thing, the, the normal, like can you actually reasonably write code right. kind of stuff, and he'll walk you through resume and, and kind of ask our projects, and then I'll do the second half where I'll ask a little, like higher level architectural questions, so like when I just gave you, like how do you handle this crazy load, or if I give you this kind of business case, how might you go around go about designing a data model to solve that, those kind of, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Are there things you've been learning as a technical leader that you wish you knew caught like a year or two ago? Um, yes. I would have to say that, um, like there's no need to go that fast, right? No, no one's, no one's pressing the gas except you. Right. Um, I think, and this kind of comes from being, this is the first startup that I've led personally that's come made it this far. Because I've been a part yeah. of other ones that have made it this far, but this is the first time it's been you know, mine. Um, and I think there was, especially when other people's money became involved, I um, there was just like all of a sudden like massive push to like, you know, we, we have to go fast. We got to get some out there. We got to prove that we're, that, that we're worthy of this money. Hmm. Versus you have to keep in mind that when people give you money, like an angel investor or a VC fund or something, especially in the early stages. I mean, when you get to series A, yeah, you start talking numbers, but um, especially at a pre-seed or a seat, you know, they're looking at who are the actual people running this business and how are they running it? And what do you like, what do you, what's your plans for the future? Right. So like once I, I, I kind of actually sat down with, with our, one of our lead investors and he kind of explained that to me. And he said, like, you know, we didn't necessarily invest in response flow just because of the product. You know, of course, we believe in the product. We think it's somewhere to go. Um, but he said, like, it's because we looked at you four and we looked at your grit and what you're willing to do to make something work. And we said, whether it be this or something else, they're going to have something. So you want to give them the ability to either build this or build that something. Um, and so all the pressure that I felt early on to like go super fast and get stuff out there and half engineer stuff, that was just all in my head and I didn't need to have that pressure. <laughs> um, deadlines are deadlines, of course, but, um, you know, if, if you're feeling yourself overwhelmed or you feel like you're not meeting expectations, like I, I wish I could have just known that like, as long as I can show that I'm moving this thing forward in the right direction, you know, graphs are going up and to the right, then everything's fine. How did you like mentally train yourself to like de-stress and to remove that like emotional like burden? Um, I didn't really train myself. I think the market did. Okay. Um, huh. <laughs> um, you just, I think a big part of it was fear of the unknown. You know, like I said, this is the first startup that I personally led that made it this far. And so I was dealing with a lot of things that I had never personally to deal with before. I'd seen happen, but now it was my responsibility. And once, you know, when you have like, your, you know, for example, your first big customer that churns, you know, that's a, a big deal. It's like, oh crap, we lost money. You know, the, the graph's going down. What are we going to tell everyone? Oh, oh, this is the end of the world. 
But, you know, once that happens a couple times, you realize, like, you can recover from it. You're fine. Like, you learn from the churn. Why they churn? You do that, you know, discovery. And you move forward. You move on with your life. Um, so I, I think at, at this point, Responful has just gone through enough growing pains where I now just understand the process more and it's overall just calmed me down. And like I mentioned earlier, I, I established the mantra that I, I sell to my engineering team as well is, you know, at the end of the day, if I feel like I did my best today, I did my best to make things work or I did my best to fix that bug or solve that customer issue, then I have nothing to feel bad about or nothing to feel stressed about because I did everything I could. So why worry? So the last question I want to ask you is what are some things you would give as a piece of advice to someone who's looking to, uh, consider the path of being a technical founder? Like what should they consider? What, what's important? How do they know it's for them? Yeah. So, um, I think that there's a couple of obvious things. First is if money is important to you, it's not for you. I, I don't make market salary at all. Like, <laughs> um, I am not a rich human being in the slightest. I think people hear the word founder, they think like, oh, you must make a lot of money. It's like, if we sold a business, sure I would, but <laughs> um, like right now, no. Um, um, so but, so if money is what you care about or you're in it for like being popular, then it's not for you because I'm not a popular person. I am, you know, I'm not a rich human being. It's I'm, I'm here to build a business because I believe in this. Um, and also, you know, and this is... You know, great assault this because it's a little bit personal opinion just from what I have seen. Um, a technical founder does not a good CEO make. Yeah. So, um, you know, find someone who understands business and finance and marketing to co-found with you. Like okay. it's a noble thing to try it by yourself. And I, I commend anyone for doing it. Um, but if you don't really understand, like, you know, finances of a business, you could find yourself in a big heap of trouble very quickly especially hmm. when you're playing with other people's money. Um, so you find you one of those and overall just don't be in a rush. You know, if, if you truly believe in something, you truly believe it's going to work. There are, of course, there are elements of you, maybe the business strategies get to market first or, you know, something, but make sure what you're doing is truly what the market is wanting as best as you can measure at the moment and make sure you minimize the amount of work you you yourself have to do. Otherwise, you'll end up with what I describe is like the bucket of Lego bricks and you're requiring the customer to put it together. And that is a recipe for a pretty terrible product. Okay. Well, thank you for your insights. Um, I just want to give you the opportunity. Like, is there, is there any way our viewers can get in touch with you or follow you along your journey as you uh, continue to build out your product? Sure. I mean, you can always reach me on LinkedIn. Um, just Austin Graham, RespondFlow. You can search it. I'll be there. Um, or they can, uh, you know, shoot me an email at austin at responsible.com. Uh, and I try to answer those as quick as possible. I, I have a few communities that I provide, you know, advice and guidance to as, as much as I can. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for your time. Yeah. Appreciate y'all as well.